Greetings, and welcome to the I.O. Tower, a podcast for all things Tron. I'm your host, David Fleming. This is part three in my three-part series with Tron co-visual effects supervisor, Harrison Ellenshaw. Harrison reflects on conceptual artists Sid Mead, Mobius, and Peter Lloyd, and how their combined talent and vision for Tron was both intimidating and exciting. He describes the casting process and the challenge of conveying the story of Tron to auditioning actors, a challenge not all would overcome. Harrison details many scenes, such as Jeff Bridges' improvised Big Door, Flynn's Arcade, Dillinger's Helicopter, and Wendy Carlos's iconic soundtrack. And Harrison was crushed that Yori's love scene was left out. We close the interview with funny voices on the set of Tron and Harrison's film about making a film, Stardom, D-U-M-B. Welcome to the I.O. Tower. What was it like having three renowned conceptual artists on the project? Sid Mead, Peter Lloyd, Mobius. What kind of energy did that bring to you and, and to the, those creating the movie and to the crew? It was, there are many keys to that movie, but with, without those three people, we never could have pulled it off. And uh, again, credit to uh, Steven Lisberger and Donald Kushner um, for taking that leap of faith. Although if you get Sid Mead, it's not a leap of faith. You know what you're getting. You're getting premier futurists, artists, great guy. And uh, Mobius, not too shabby. Mm. And the whole the whole idea of at, at one point we were supposed to be within a budget of twelve million. And I remember Stephen saying, uh, you know, early on, this is what we need. This is this will make the film. Um, and I'm thinking this is going to be expensive. <laughs> mm. Uh, but uh, to their credit, they were passionate, and they, they they look at the light cycles. You look at the characters and the costumes. You look at the, I mean, to have John Giraud storyboard the entire movie, the entire electronic world. Wow! Like you know, I'm supposed to go check up on these guys. How's it going? Uh, maybe uh, movies, <laughs> is it? Yeah. Have you done anything before? Anyway, look. Right. <laughs> I, I was so intimidated, but I was so excited because they, in their own way, were so creative that they would add to the mix. They would say, "Well, try here's here's three different you know versions of this character. Um, what do you think? Where's the dartboard? It looks good. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, I'm. I'm being a little bit glib, but that's why I was so happy to have. I couldn't have done it as just the one uh, supervisor. Mm. It had to be Richard, and without Richard, there would be right. It seems as I talk to each of you and others that uh, more and more it becomes clear that you can take any one of you out of this loop, and this film isn't happening. Mm-hmm. And that makes it very special. Yeah, it's nice. I get all kind of messed out. Good. (laughs) (laughs) And here's the weird thing. If I look at it in context of my career, um, you know, I 
I was exhausted. I, I took a break. I said, uh, I, I'm not taking anything else. I, I know this film is so good that there's bound to be a sequel. And you know, that didn't happen. There was a sequel, but I guess they lost my number. <laughs> Wait a minute. There's a, oh, no, sorry. Uh, yeah, that's that's life. You You know, that's an interesting question to ask is why wasn't there a sequel uh, sooner anyway? Um, And the film came out and flopped. It sure did. It sure did. But Tron strikes me as one of those few films. uh, Blade Runner is another one that comes to mind, which Mm. is so ahead of its time at the time that it just has trouble finding a foothold with with the common person. It has trouble grabbing a mass audience because it is so visionary. It, it looks to a time and even a place, this being inside the computer, uh, at a time when most people were still, you know, not having a personal computer. Most people didn't have a computer in their home yet, but that was happening. I mean, that was changing. People were getting computers. And, um, as, a, as a young kid learning how to program Apple II computers, um, which was a few years after Tron had came out. Um, it just seems to me that those few years of difference, 1982 for Tron and r- roughly around 1985 for me learning how to program Apple II computers, but just those three years of difference between 82 and 85, there was so much evolution in the personal computer realm. And, and you know, a lot of people had some kind of computer in their house at that point. But again, just that few years, you go back to 1982, and I think most people didn't really know what a personal computer was. And if you were associated with a university or a school or, or a computer club, then you knew what computers were. And for Tron to take that, that leap, that chance of saying, let's imagine what computers are for society. I, I remember Steven Lisberger talking about how each of us is inside the computer, whether it's our driver's license or social security number. And he was saying that, it, I mean, Forget Facebook. <laughs> you know, this was, oh, was 1980. Come on. Yeah, MySpace. There you go. Um, what a visionary um, outlook on what technology could be for us. Um, so I think the reason to sort of come back to the question, why wasn't there a Tron sequel? In my mind, it's because people didn't understand what Tron 1 was for the most part. Um, I got it. I got it right away. But then again, I'm a computer nerd. <laughs> and as you know, the the other people that got it were the kids uh, with uh, going to game arcades and playing, uh, you know, Space Invaders and all that stuff. And and that was the intent. What happens yeah. if you're at, there, you know, Jeff Bridges, and suddenly, boom, you become part of You go inside the computer right. and live in that world. In making Tron, as a visual effects supervisor and going day to day to see the different uh, departments and, and the, the trailers of the film to see how the, the crews were doing. Did you get to interact with the cast much? Um, as associate producer, um, I was involved from, from the very beginning, and that included casting. Oh, good. And um, I would never want to be a casting director. <laughs> it's, it's a thankless job. You got to deal with the agents. You got to deal with the manager, and then oh. you have to deal with the actor <laughs> who just yeah 
Uh, okay, I'm not going to badmouth anybody because there are cool. people, uh, Jeff Bridges, Kevin Klein, or people who will, uh, Michael Jackson, who will, what do you need? I'll, I'll, I'll stay here all night. Wow. Get, get the shots. I, I don't mind. Um, then there's, I think it was Stephen, maybe Donald, who came up with the idea of getting Blondie to come in. Oh, yeah. I thought, well, that's a great idea. I mean, she's a great singer, high profile. Um, she came in, so we did a screen test, and it was awful. Oh. She, she just didn't. You can't blame her. She'd never been in a movie. And the screen tests or the casting things were really hard because even even Jeff and Bruce and Cindy Morgan said, well, uh, what am I looking at? Right. Well, we we haven't defined that yet. <laughs> we're still working on what you're looking at. So yeah, I was wanting to ask along that line. The, the concept of Tron, was that a hard story to explain to would-be actors of the film? It was a hard story for me to understand. I mean, it was it's okay. They're inside the, the computer. Um, that's kind of cool. But it's a whole unknown world because we can't actually, you know, if we want to take apart a video game, there's a bunch of wires, which, by the way, we did incorporate wires in it. So you're basically starting with a an interesting concept in the black, a blank page. And that's probably, the, my heart goes out to animators, especially those who do character design. And, you know, the script is always very helpful, but the script and the writer doesn't ever fully describe, describe the physical features most writers say um, introduction of a character, a uh, Flynn, a, a self-confident programmer who has has been felt betrayed because of his talent or something. Right. And you go, well, okay, get the get the director of photography in here, and can can you light this? <laughs> <laughs> You've got to make that huge jump, right? Uh, and it's a it's a leap of faith, and that's why casting is very important. Blondie, uh, she why should she f- have to figure? She couldn't figure out what what the hell is she doing here? Right? What is my character? What's the essence? What should I be feeling? How can I project something that makes no sense? And I think that was one of the challenges uh, for the actors. It was tougher than most. Jeff can pull it off. Cindy was confused, but after she got over her anxiety, she was great. Um, Bruce, when we cast Bruce, it was, there it is. (laughs) He'd been in Westerns. Right, right. But there it is. That's Tron. And I remember seeing uh, uh, some screen tests where uh, Bruce would throw the Frisbee, the identity disc around in costume to get the get the spirit of the character Tron and really getting into it. And it seems like such a wonderful uh, behind the scenes thing to see. Uh, you really get a sense of Bruce is, is seeing, oh, OK, I got this. I see who this is. I can do this. 
And it just really just puts a lot of energy into it. Frisbee thrower on the day. <laughs> we had a Frisbee expert, but yeah. he just took to it because he's athletic and you know, turned sideways and could do it from here. And I'm thinking, whoa, he's extremely talented and he is strong to, yes. to this day. I can yes. time two times I've seen it. Um, and of course, the real another one of great ads was David Warner. Mm-hmm. And David had no freaking idea what. <laughs> so Stephen, Stephen would, would be great. He'd just whisper in their ear some sort of magic. Wow. Good actors are good actors. There you go. Tron is chock full of good actors, that's for sure. Yeah. So Tron was shot at the um, the National Livermore Laboratory. Oh, no. <laughs> the, the, the laser bay scene. How was that like, uh, sort of getting that site as a I shooting have, location? I, I have no idea. I, seriously. Um, <laughs> because when we first approached them, they said, well, no way. Can't do it. Now we cannot do this. This is, you know, this is where we make atomic bombs and scary stuff. And so Donald Kushner, again, a key component, got us in there. Wow. And, um, you know, we had we had very limited time to shoot uh, and we couldn't light the whole thing with movie lights. So Bruce Logan said, well, let's not worry about it. We'll light here and here and I'll put gels on and that stuff and that was that was exciting just to pull off and I took a lot of uh Hasselblad two and a quarter two and a quarter ectochromes that we used for cutaways and things like that yeah that laser bay sure added a lot of dimension and fun to the film to watch uh Cindy Morgan and Jeff Bridges run around as they're finding their way to the to the laser bay and the terminal just added a lot of, of mischief and just a lot of joyous fun to the film. Yeah, and there was a lot of uh, as I say, we we were only had a limited time there, and um, you know, the, of course, the classic is uh, the the uh, the line improvised by Jeff. Now that is a big door. I, I was saying, can, can you make it open a little faster? They go, look, it's 30 tons. What's wrong with you people? <laughs> it is very thick. And so we've got to get the shot. So we got the shot and halfway through it, you know, it's kind of awkward because <laughs> it's a Jeff improvised. It goes, now that's a big door. <laughs> that's wonderful. That door sure added a lot of uh, menace to the idea of income and the and the and the corporation and the well, was, security it, that was involved. Exactly, it was the you know it was the antagonist in a lot of ways. Yeah, and that's why it worked so well. The the whole concept, Dillinger, you know, and his you know nefarious plan to control. Yeah, and make a few bucks. <laughs> Definitely. And, and when he, so when he's as Sark and he, you know, he swings his arm back and knocks over the program, the guy. <laughs> Again, that was that was so 
brilliantly conceived. And of course, I was we were crushed, as I've said before. That the love scene was cut out of the movie. Yes, the, the Yori cut. love scene with the um, with the computer dress of sorts. Yeah, with the first we go from here to here. lovely scene i believe that showed off some art uh, another concept designed by sid mead if i recall yeah when in doubt you know yeah those, those three people were so instrumental in, in giving the look and we were fortunate because there was also the disney art department production designer dean mitzner people who could you know take care of implementing the designs, mm. making them work. And as I say, Bruce Logan, if we had gone with any of our original ideas, we'd still be <laughs> another, another Another really wonderful thing was the helicopter at night. Yeah. That was Bruce and Richard. And they just said, well, how about if we do this, this, and this? And of course, I'm going, well, the FAA is not going to like the fact that wing, the blades have extra stuff on them. Somebody, I think the helicopter pilot, you know. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the red lights on the helicopter were a very, and it was very just gorgeous or, effect. It just, oh, I'm still getting chills about that shot. Yeah. The Flynn's Arcade Building which is in Culver City. Um, it's a very interesting video arcade with the arches and the entrance. Um, it was used as Flynn's Arcade, and it's a restaurant now, and I believe the upper floor is for rent. has been for a long time, I understand. A lot of people on the, a lot of folks on the Tron Facebook groups are always uh, talking about what they're going to do. They're going to rent the building out and build an arcade, and I hope somebody does. That would be amazing. <laughs> Was that locate? How was that location chosen, and, and how did that factor into the designs? I think it was probably the, the location manager and the art department, and it was just another one of those serendipity things. Um, I remember driving down there with other places, nothing quite, worked. but Culver City happens to be one of those little spots in the metropolis of L.A. That has a you know a certain look to it due to being close to MGM and so on and so forth. And it's at a it's not at a, at, a, at an intersection, a common intersection, but it, it's kind of two roads come together in this this building brick, and it had a it had a rounded design, mm. um, which was perfect for putting up the. I mean, it's just you know one of those things that really works. And it was it was it was great. And also just the ability of Dean Mitzner and the art department to come up with a billboard, have to design a billboard from scratch, call the billboard company and whatever, go through that bit of business and say, we want to rent the billboard. And you know, what are the requirements there? It just blew my mind. I mean, this is why 
the credits at the end of movies, including Tron, go on forever because everybody goes, well, how tough is it to make a movie? You know, Lawrence of Arabia, all you need is a desert and a you know, <laughs> costume design. I mean, what's the big deal? It's a big deal. Certainly. Tell me a bit about Buena Vista. The movie Tron opens up with the Buena Vista Distribution Company. And I believe uh, you had something to do with Buena Vista Visual Effects as a company. And how does that tie into Tron? Well, oh, my God, that's right. I'll try to keep it. <laughs> as you know, uh, as I said earlier, I came back to Disney, having Empire Strikes Back up in Marin County. I came back to Disney. Right time, right place. And Tron came along. I didn't even give it much thought about any of this stuff. But I'd been in films long enough to know that take nothing for granted. Mm. You know, you go down the, in pre-production. Okay, craft service. Who we got for craft service? Okay, what are we going to serve at craft service? Everybody likes this. Some people. And even though I minimize it, it's important. Because mm. if, if the craft service table, which gives snacks and stuff, sucks, the crew's going to be pissed off. Sure. I mean, this is important. And the, and the meals, you better bring in the best caterer or whenever, if you're the lot. Sure. Otherwise, they won't feel like giving you their best effort. So mm. catering companies in Hollywood, there came down to a few. And one was along King Mary. Anyway, so it's that kind of thing that allows, if you don't have to worry about that, and you don't have to worry about other things. I mean, okay, how are we going to get there? Well, we'll call transportation, we'll get a van, well, we need this, we need that. Then you've got to get to, you know, the location, scout. And then when you come around to decide to shoot there, well, you got to get an army of people, you got to get yeah. police, you've got to get this, you've got to have, you know, 15 ADs, crowd control. And so that's what I, I as an associate producer, that's what I would, I would help do because mm-hmm. I had enough time in the business and I'd seen how it, and though, you know, I'd never been to film school, but I knew what a call sheet was. Yeah. <laughs> Right, and I, I know, I knew what HHB meant, having had breakfast, and <laughs> so the, those things are always very important. A happy crew, a well-fed crew, is a good. Even though sometimes they go, ah, oh, I can't believe steak and lobster again. <laughs> yeah. So you took it upon yourself to to bring this aspect, bring a solution to this part of the problem. Uh, well, that the, was part of my job. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I had two titles, associate producer and co-supervisor of visual effects. And I was too young to know that, you know, it'd probably kill me. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I'm still here. the music. Uh, Wendy Carlos, of course, did the soundtrack for Tron, and it's a wonderful soundtrack. Absolutely in love with it. 
She's well known for pioneering the synthesizer. And I didn't realize for a number of years until after I had seen Tron, probably a good 15 years, uh, that I had already heard of Wendy Carlos, one of my favorite albums called Switched on Bach. My dad was a music professor at a college near where we lived. And my dad would check out new albums that would come into the media center there at the college. And he brought home Switched on Bach. But for the longest time, I had no idea. That's Wendy Carlos. That's Tron. And once you put that together, of course, she would be the perfect choice to write music for a movie about being inside the computer. Wendy Carlos, her contribution to Tron. That was amazing. How did you guys pick her out? That was Stephen and Donald. And um, Stephen had this, you know, the whole idea of Tron was was crazy. And one of the things uh, that I really enjoyed doing was going and watching the mixers, you know, doing the mix, the final mix of the film. Um, I was fortunate enough to once do a small independent movie, and it was the best part of it in a way. It's that mm-hmm. Peter Rotter, still in business, um, made arrangements for having some of the people, uh, studio musicians. Now, this was a tiny come in on the weekend, not on the clock, kind of cheating a bit. And his idea, and I relate this because it's a little bit, was this is the order we're going to do the music and we're going to have this many strings and this and this and this. And um, so we'll start out with everybody. And these musicians, you just hand out the sheets and they go, yeah, we're ready. Well, don't you want to do chords or something? Yeah. <laughs> That's where we're studio musicians. You know, give us a thing. Here we go. Boop, 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 boop. And um, that to me is magic. So anyway, we would start out on, on this little movie with a, you know, medium-sized orchestra, 40, 50, 35, 40. Um, and then as each track was put down, somebody would get excused. So by the end, we had a quartet who was doing this individual music. And um, each time Peter uh, would come back into the booth and he'd say to me, was that one okay? Sound good to me. And so having studio professional musicians is a gift from heaven. Mm. It really is. And these are the people, I mean, we've all heard about the Wrecking Crew now. It, they, they're the go-to the ones that understand. I was fortunate enough to meet Michael Giacchino and he invited me over to a session at Sony and he didn't conduct, but there was there was a conductor and it was ding, and of course the music to uh, to up was evocative. Yes, it was amazing. And to requote again, George Lucas, he said. Music is half the film. Yeah. Yes, I think so. Yeah. Well, yeah. Star Wars theme. How did that happen? Jaws. Gee. I, you know, we we hear these themes and we immediately identify it because it touches us and brings us back to the visual that so 
made it so relatable. Yes, exactly. The, the music Wendy wrote for Tron really just for me made me feel like I was hearing the computer or hearing what it would be like yeah. to be in the computer and connecting that emotionally with, with that experience being a young computer programmer. Well, there, there were another two key people, Michael Fremer, who was the music organizer guy, and Frank Serafini, mm. who I didn't know any of these people. Um, that wasn't, you know, part of my daily. And I believe Frank was the sound editor. Is that correct? He created. Yeah, he was. Uh, sound he was synthesizer. And yeah, I'm not quite. I can't quite remember how the interaction all took place. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, then of course, Journey. Mm-hmm. Only solutions. Yes, very which good song. Came in at the last minute, and Gary Kreisel, head of music at Disney, was very excited. And he said, um, "Okay, I've got Journey to do Only Solutions. Great song." I often play the Tron soundtrack while I'm working on a painting a helmet or doing the computer programming with the, trying to replicate some of the graphics, and and the Only Solutions plays, and I'm like, "I can do this. Only Solutions." <laughs> Yeah, I, yeah, everything's right about it. So I have a couple extra questions that came my way. Uh, I think you had listened to the interview with John Grower. Um, yes, I loved it. Good, thank you. In the podcast, you talked about how you and and Richard would would uh, embody these voices or these characters. You would just decide that something to the effect that you would go into work one day and decide we're going to do this voice. So, so <laughs> what, what what's What's the story with the voices? I, <laughs> he's probably right, but I, I think it was such, it was so much pressure that Richard and I would, as well as other people, we get a little silly because so, <laughs> so he would do, I think Walter Brennan and I would do somebody else. I don't know. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> I couldn't have done it without Richard. I couldn't have done it without so many other people. And um, we tried to <laughs> keep keep a certain lightness to it. It's 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 kind of like you know what do you call it gallows humor. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, it's like <laughs> okay, just <laughs> Shh, Richard, don't tell anybody we. We're screwed. We're never going to make the deadline. And people would, the, the, the scene coordinators, they would say, we can't finish by July. And we go, it's okay. Don't worry about it. We'll, we'll handle it. But there was the July release date set in stone and <laughs> they pulled it off. I'll ask you about something else that uh, John mentioned. He said, oh, you've got to ask Harrison about his movie, Stardom. (laughs) I said, Stardom? And he said, Stardom, D-U-M-B. You've got to ask Harrison about his film, Stardom. So, Harrison, I've got to ask you, can you tell us about this film, Stardom, that you, I guess, you you created? (laughs) Well, (laughs) how long you got? Uh, (laughs) I've got all day. (laughs) There used to be a T-shirt that had, but what I really want to do is direct on it. <laughs> I had this great idea about making a film, about making a film. 
I've always been a fan of Day for Night, uh, Eight and a Half. Uh, there's another Kurosawa film. It's just that that there's a story there. The, the pain, the going through the you know the actor that won't come out of their trailer, the, the people. That, I mean, it's all that stuff. And as I've said before, uh, you show up at a at a location somewhere. It's you've timed the weather correctly. It's summertime, but as soon as a film crew arrives, Mother Nature says, "Nope," <laughs> and a blizzard will come in <laughs> in Mississippi, Alabama. <laughs> In the middle of summer, or it'll rain for days, and you're just gone. This is crazy. <laughs> so you have to be prepared. And so I, I made this film called Stardom. Eventually changed the name to Dead Silence. Ah. And um, it's uh, it's it's available. I'll uh, I'll send you a DVD. So when you have to. You can't sleep at night. You can look at it and <laughs> go out. I had so much fun, and it was so difficult because everything that could go wrong did go wrong, <laughs> and we had we had the same same thing happen. We're at a location in Pasadena. Suddenly, a thunder. We're out by a pool, and there's a an actor, a stunt person at the bottom of the pool and they're supposed to be dead. And sure enough, this thunder lightning storm <laughs> shows up and I'm going, Oh, screw it. Let's just keep shooting. We'll keep shooting. <laughs> and I have to say that the gaffer, the grips said, no, we can't do this. It's dangerous. I said, so what? Keep shooting. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the director. <laughs> they said, nope. Mm. We're, we're getting everything back on the truck, and we're getting the hell out of here. Wow. So what are you doing now, Harrison? What do you, what do, you do? Do you paint? No. No? I, you know, I, 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 uh, it's kind of odd for me um, because of the way the world is. Uh, COVID-19 has changed everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... I'm fortunate that I don't have a job. Uh, I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't do what I used to do, younger, more energetic. So I do a lot of writing. I'm not a great writer, but I have, I have people that I email back and forth with, some who care about Tron, some who care about other things. Right. And um, just reminiscing like this yeah <laughs> and I'll, uh, I'll I, I I'm always and this is not being immodest or modest go how did destiny pick me I I've lived wonderful life oh, perfect um, but that's what make that's what makes it so good I realize you know have light must have dark and I have I've never had to go through really, really tough time. Um, I was young, uh, ambitious, you know, served in the Navy, got shot at. It's a miracle I'm still here. I, when you're young, you think, yeah, 
okay. You're just kind of, you know, bouncing around and going, oh, okay, whatever. And uh, there are days now that I, 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 I kind of think, and this is why this is so therapeutic, is that, um, you know, it's, is that all there is? And then I, okay, cool your jets. Something unexpected will happen tomorrow. It may not be really sexy or exciting. It keeps me grounded. I'm, I'm, I'm so fortunate. Music from the Tron soundtrack. Additional music is Water by Tenger. Intro music by me. If you enjoyed this podcast, please support the IO Tower at patreon.com slash ddprogram. Until next time, I'm your host, David Fleming. End of line. <laughs>